Welcome to episode 17 of Reading the Realms, the book club podcast where we are reading every published novel in the Forgotten Realms. This month's book is Viper Hand by Douglas Niles, the second novel of the Mastika trilogy. I'm your host, Max, and with me is my co-host, Paula. Hey, everybody. We're, we're actually doing this, Paul. We are putting out two episodes in a single month. Well, we've done it. We've, like, hit our, hit our prime right now. Yeah, we, uh, I, I'm just amazed that we managed to do this. Yeah, if you hadn't already been read so far ahead, I don't think it would have really happened. No, that's definitely true. <laughs> that's entirely, entirely true. So, um, yeah, we're we're hitting it basically the same way we did uh, earlier in the month with the second book of the second book of the Empire's trilogy. Now we're on the second book of the Mastika trilogy, and comparatively, we were talking about this a little bit before uh, we started recording. But comparatively, this trilogy does not hold up at all and looks very bad in comparison to empires <laughs> yep, sure does prepare for a pretty good breakdown of all the things that are not great about this book i will say there's some stuff like especially towards the end there's some really cool like world building and also a lot of really cool ideas that you could implement in a in your own like home game of D if you were going to run some sort of some sort of like dungeon maybe set in Maztica and some interesting stuff that you can incorporate but overall i think that's maybe the most positive thing you could take from this book but we'll we'll get into it um as we get as we get further into the plot there's not really a whole lot to say about author or background on this book i mean it's doug niles we all pretty much know who he is at this point um he's done a pretty significant amount of writing for the forgotten realms for better or worse so i think we can just go to the we can actually jump to the back cover blurb which is very uh, – Paula, do you, you have a, a paperback copy of this, don't you? I sure do. Yeah, the back cover is very dramatic. Total destruction. Eric's the former slave girl, and Halloran, the legionnaire, flee from the waves of catastrophe sweeping Mastika. The god of war feasts upon chaos while the desperate lovers strive to escape from enemies on all sides. Finally, each is forced into a choice of historical proportions and deeply personal emotion. The gods themselves awaken, and the destruction of the fabulously wealthy wealthy continent of Mastika looms on the horizon. Yet Eric's bears with her a desperate secret, and with that secret comes the lone hope that Mastika can survive. Viper hand. <laughs> I feel like that almost is a more accurate description of the second book of Horse Lords than that was of Viper Hand after yeah. reading that. That's true. I mean, it's yeah, it's uh, you're you're right about that. I I think Horse Lord's also a pretty dramatic book, but you know more so in scope and in terms of of the story that gets told over the course of the book, rather than uh, you know in in Viperhand we get we get a prophecy at the beginning of the book, and then that prophecy plays out exactly how we were told it was going to play out with zero tension or mystery whatsoever. <laughs> Yep, sounds about right. They basically surmise the book for you on the back, except for with the addendum of, by the way, Mastika does get destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it definitely okay, there's does. For you. On the other hand, I think we could probably both agree the single best part about this book is the cover. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Fred Fields is, again, the artist for this, and I gotta say, he really outdoes himself. Like, I, I like the first book cover but this one is absolutely amazing oh this is so good let's, and i let's, love how darian doesn't even look like a drow oh no not at all i mean she 
Yeah, and she's wearing some kind of this weird described, Like, that's what I need to know. Like, when did I, how did I miss the description of this outfit through these two? <laughs> he describes everything else in fucking minute detail, but not this outfit on Darian. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. I mean, we have a volcano that is erupting, and in the cloud of gas that is erupting out of it, we have what appear to be the, the Jaguar Knights. We have, I guess, Nalticona, the the ruler. I'm not entirely sure who this guy is on here. We have the Hand of Helm, which is his symbol, which doesn't make any sense because the book is called Viper Hand, and you get a pretty thorough, constant description of the brand that the Viper Hand adherents are branded with. So it would make (laughs) a lot more sense to have that on there. (laughs) Right, it is a little bit. Yeah, and then you get Darian looking very dramatic and all sexy with her weird spandex outfit and uh, some sort of wand. Probably the the wand that she uses to cast Cone of Cold um, at one point. Nicely tamed lady curls. Yeah, the, quite some blonde, uh, really more white locks. But yeah, it's uh, you you 100% called it at the end of the last book when you said she's definitely a drow. And I was like, oh, I said, it could be. We'll see. But no, I mean, spoilers. She's definitely a drow. <laughs> was just like the way that he's writing like so ambiguously about her she has to be a drow there is no other choice yeah and you 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 totally called that one so yeah absolutely the colors on this cover too i mean all kinds of bright greens and reds and blues even with the problems for the story with this cover i would just have this cover like as an art piece on my wall it's so pretty Oh yeah, I would totally take a a print or or the original of this. Some someone's got to have a have this somewhere, and it's probably hopefully it's framed and and hang on someone's wall. So yeah, so uh, just a wonderful cover. That's probably some of the last good stuff we'll say about this book. But I think we can jump right into it. Oh, all right, we're doing it. All right, so the book just starts basically right off where the last one left with Hal, Airy, and Poshly Poshly trying to make their way across the desert in order to make it to Nexel to save them and warn them of what's coming and blah blah blah. Hal's in love, in love with Aerie. Aerie's in love with Hal. They're being stupid about it. Poshley's basically just like, yep, I'm here. Yeah, I didn't. I don't even understand how they got to the desert because the last book ends and they're in the jungle at the top of a pyramid somewhere and then all of a sudden they're just like in a desert and I was like, okay, so I, the and we don't really, uh, another pet peeve that I'll just bring up only once because uh, there's enough. There's going to be enough bitching. The map on this book is not worthwhile at all. We get two maps. One is the Valley of Nexal, which it's all right. I mean, it kind of gives you an idea of how they've put a city on a lake in the middle of all these volcanoes, which, well, man, that's a bad idea. And then we get the Sacred Plaza, which is a very rough map of the city that isn't necessary in the least i mean i i never i think this is maybe the first time i've ever read a fantasy novel and i haven't i didn't refer back to the the and i you know i've i've expressed this before on the show a few times that i love having maps at the front of books and i look at them a lot this is the first time i never went back to the front of the book to look at the map and kind of situate and try to better understand where things were i think that really says a lot about the necessity of the map and probably the quality of it too it's really i'm looking at it again now it's not that great yeah i feel like they're like we need a map of something but i don't really know of what so we'll just go with this yeah, I think you could have just had just the valley map. And on the and you know, in the first book they had a map of all of Mest or the part of Mestica that matters. And so they weren't probably just gonna plop that back in again. But yeah, the the again the map is just not too good. Um so I don't really understand how they ended up in the desert. It doesn't really make sense in my mind, like 
with you know how it's like all right we're going back to the city and then now we're on our way back to the city yeah Just jumping in feet first they're dying of thirst and hunger basically yeah i mean long story short they make it back to the city and it's not really a very dramatic uh thing but before that happens at kind of at the very beginning before it jumps back into their story we get a sort of a focus on how the old gods of Faerun and the new gods quote-unquote of Mastika are interacting and we actually get a view for the very first time not a view necessarily but kind of a little bit of uh some input I guess from Loth or how do you how do you pronounce Loth do you pronounce it Loth or Loth Loth? yeah yeah I know some people pronounce it Loth because there's that extra L in there I feel like Um, this gets into the dress drizzit thing yeah, that's the writer tells me that's what I'm going with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so we actually understand that she is not too happy that there are, you know, obviously the drow who landed in Maztica and they're worshiping Zoltek and she's not very happy about that because she's a jealous god and she's pretty well well positioned as that at this point. And mm-hmm. it's. It's kind of interesting because our ne- the next book, not chronologically, but in terms of release schedule, is Homeland, is the first book of the, the Dark Elf trilogy, which we're mm-hmm. both looking forward to. And that's where you really get into the Drow Society and their interactions with Loth and everything. So this is kind of an interesting preface to the full-on, like, okay, now we're really going to learn about Loth. It's kind of a tease. Yeah. Especially since, I mean, okay, these books have been out long enough that we're not really doing any spoilers here. Especially because it discusses Driders in Homeland, but I don't really feel like you get that kind of teeth-sinking moment of, like, this is genuinely lost full displeasure like Mm -hmm. you do at the end of this book with it. I would agree. I think that it gives you kind of that nice little kick in the face that hey by the way the next book's about Loth and it's gonna be a bitch (laughs) and you also kind of understand how you know the the ancient quote-unquote ancient ones are the drow who are here and Maztica and they more or less control the priests of Zoltek the cult and the cult of the viper hand and it's sort of that's sort of pretty hinted at I mean it, it I don't think they said it explicitly but it was very heavily hinted at in the first book and then now it is I think they tell you that they, the drow, were the ones who instituted the human sacrifice, which basically means an outside force came in and is responsible for the like stereotype of the savage natives performing human sacrifice, which really makes the whole like racist, like, oh, they're so savage uh, remark on them seem even more racist because it's like, well, they're not even really responsible for that if an yeah, outside force came in and instituted it. Kind of thing, right? Yeah, so I I found that part a little interesting. Yeah, along with uh, our three, you know, for better or worse, main characters heading towards Nexal, we have Cordell and the Legion also marching for Nexal. Yes, they're kind of taking a circumventing route because they know that they're being watched by the Eagles and they don't exactly want them to know where their final destination is, although it's already been pretty heavily assumed on all sides that the invaders are seeking wealth and they're going to come for Nexal. Right. And I think it's it's interesting. We get a we get a brief picture of their march through Pyat and through Koltaka, which are the other main countries in Mastika. And what's kind of cool again from a historical standpoint is that as they defeat the tribes, they are showing a little bit of uh, mercy towards them because they are not just wiping them out outright. 
they are offering to ally with them in order to come with them and then defeat the Nexons, which everybody hates on this continent pretty much because they're the strongest and they're rivals. And that's also how it worked with Cortez and the Aztecs. He would conquer a tribe and say, okay, I won't kill all of you if you'll come and help me take out uh, the stronger tribe that lives further into uh, where basically where Mexico City was. We talked about this last time. Um, mm-hmm. So that kind of another historical connection there. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I did enjoy kind of that they are keeping a little bit of that historical undertone and it's not quite the slap in the face that it was in the first book. Um, yeah, and I will say also in terms of historical stuff, and this is kind of the last point where this even matters uh, during this book, but we don't get any, thankfully, <laughs> I was really worried about this, Paula. Thankfully, we don't get anything that resembles uh, malaria blankets. <laughs> mm-hmm. No no germ warfare in this book, thankfully. I was kind of thinking that too. I was like, man, I'm just waiting for like, so really I'll tell you which scene it was that I thought it was going to happen. The scene where they go into Palul and they sit down for the feast and he's basically like, okay, like Cordell's like, yeah, okay, cool. We'll come chill with you guys. We won't attack. Let's make peace. Let's do this. And then they go for a feast. I was expecting the next scene to be gifts of blankets and death for everyone. Yeah, well, I mean, it was death for everyone, but the they just missed the blankets part, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> All right, we're jumping ahead a bit. So how and the party arrive at Nexal, basically... Posh says, hey, my uncle's in charge. I'm going to talk to him. You guys are going to be my guests. It's all going to be cool. Fortunately, it is in a very roundabout way. He gets delayed because we learn that the Viper Hands are dramatically increasing their number at this point rapidly. The uh, Supreme should Hubal. not to not to interrupt you too much. Should we describe what exactly the Viper Hand is? Sure. The Viper Hand. Do you want to talk about the society or the actual Viper Hand mark, the Viper Hand? Go ahead and, and describe the the mark and like what it means to, I guess, the, the cult and, and Zoltec and, and the society. I'm asking you honestly because I don't really understand it very well myself. <laughs> um, what I kind of gathered through reading these is that the so the Viper Hand symbol is the is a red hand and a viper's head on the palm of their leader, whose name starts with an H and has an X name for life me. I can't think of what it is. It's like Haloxal or some crap like that. Yeah. So he has been, because he is the head priest of Zoltec, he's basically been blessed with this mark of Zoltec, and by channeling his divine energy through it, he's able to leave this mark on other people, basically inducting them into the cult. And I know it kind of briefly touches on the symbolism and from what I can gather and remember, it has something to do with basically like the red of his hand is like this uh, sacrificial blood to Zoltec's happiness. And then the viper has to do with like that you, uh, the vipers are known to be deadly, but that they still strike at their enemies without being seen. And basically like kind of pulling together symbolically that like we sacrifice our, we sacrifice to our God that we move in the shadows, but that people also know that we're deadly, like I think is the symbolism that kind of circles into the cult. And ultimately the cult, even though it doesn't come straight out and say it is sort of Nalticona's like personal little army because his main cleric for Zoltec is inducting these people and he's there actively sitting and watching participating so clearly he knows that this army is getting built up and so while yes they are both the religious fanatics to Zoltec they're also becoming his personal army within the city 
that really isn't under his control because it's under the control of the ancient ones. But that's neither here nor there at the moment. That that's an ex. Thank you for that. That is an excellent explanation of something that is very poorly explained and defined over the course of this three hundred page book, and it is yeah. the title of the book. Right. I yeah. They really did not ever sit down and be like. Let's talk about what the fucking Viper Hand is and is not kind of thing. They're just very ambiguous. And the really upsetting part is that other than at the end when they all transform into monsters, which we'll get to, like, ultimately, they basically did nothing throughout this fucking book other than oh, right. fail the one thing they were supposed to do, which was catch and sacrifice Eerie. That was all they were supposed to do, and they blow at it. Yeah, exactly. It's It doesn't make any... I mean, they're... I'm sure if we sat down and thought about it, there's probably many better names for this book. But Viperhand, given what is actually happens in the book, doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it's a cool name for sure. Like it's they're a cult. They're like more or less a secret warrior cult. But also, why does the city not have actual warriors and actual army? It just it's so ill defined. It doesn't really make any sense. Okay. I I think that the person me. who named this book also named Dragon Wall because why do you name <laughs> the book Dragon Wall when it comes down at the end of the first book and then doesn't come up again? Yeah, it must have been an editorial decision from the the editorial department on. Um, We're going with ambiguous books that vaguely refer or vague, ambiguous titles that vaguely refer to the previous book. That's what yeah. we're going with for this yeah. series. <laughs> so yeah, that that's an excellent explanation of that. Um, and you're right about how we kind of get to the city and then things slow down dramatically. Dramatically, yeah. <laughs> this was not uh, the point to hit a lull because you aren't even through the first third of the book, which really oh, no, just killed yeah. my desire to read this. Yeah, it, it there is some interesting stuff here. Like I will say, when we when we get a little bit more about the what Nexal is like as a city, and you know, we knew it was a theocracy, but we get more about like how the whole sacrifice thing works. And basically there is this ruling religious class, the the cultists or the the uh, the religion of Zaltek. And basically for any reason at any time, they can decide to sacrifice if you're a citizen of the city, or pretty much if you're not, if you just end up there, they can decide to sacrifice your life for like quote unquote the good of the state. And I think that's a really cool idea. Like if you ended up in a place like this in, in your D D game and you had to tread really carefully, like, that's a cool idea, and that introduces a lot of tension into it. It it needs more exploring, but I thought that was really neat. Yeah, it definitely has the bones of some really good creative building from that idea, which unfortunately they didn't tap into in this book, which is kind of sad, because I and think they, they felt like we established in the first book we do sacrifices. In the second book, we kind of tell you how we pick sacrifices, so now we don't need to give you a why. And then also during this point, we get a very... The love triangle I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I mean, this really, it it puts Twilight to shame, really, in terms of how bad of a love triangle it is. Possibly fears that Ari could potentially be sacrificed. So instead of just talking to his uncle about it and being like, hey, uncle, please don't sacrifice the cute girl that I brought with me, he decides to resign from being an eagle warrior and then he proposes to Erie, and I'm thinking his thought process here is like, if she's my wife, they won't hurt her, she'll be protected kind of thing, because at no point does he indicate up till now that he has any interest in her sexual or otherwise. Then there's a really awkward kiss scene. That was awkward. Yeah, and it's it's one of these Not things. out in the hallway. Being oh, a creep. yeah. And it's it's one of those like dramatic tension things where he doesn't see the whole thing. And, yet, you know, I mean, you get the idea. But 
it's also one of those one of those love stories where it's over before it even starts. I mean, it's like, uh, well, what what was even the point of of wasting the time to to do this? I it didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's very just like if eh. you make his character the type that's a stand up guy that comes to her and is like, hey, I know you and Hal are in love, but with how things are are right now, like I'm concerned for your safety. I think it would be worth the three of us sitting down and discussing possibly arranging a marriage for your safety while you're in the city or, you know, like being the kind of guy that's like straight up, I'm doing this because I'm concerned for your safety in this situation, not because this is coming from a place of feelings and every like I genuinely want to be with you and the yeah. whole kit and caboodle because that is not what he's after. It, it just isn't. He just wants to make sure that she's safe. That would have been a lot more interesting and you know potentially you can explore their characters a lot better if you're going into it from that angle rather than trying to just contrive some sort of false emotional relationship between them. Yeah. yeah you are going to build up to a real love triangle that's how you put down the foundation because then as they start to cohabitate as husband and wife to protect her that's when his real feelings for her start to develop not off the cuff while we've been fighting i've literally known you for six seconds and all the other time i've known you we've been crossing a desert dying of death and dehydration <laughs> Like, yeah. that's not the foundation of a love of a of a love situation here, guys. The less said about that, the better, I think. <laughs> yeah. So that whole hoopla is going on. Basically, Hal is meeting with uh, Noxicona or Nolticona and is telling him a little bit about his world while also becoming very intrigued by the society that he sees around him because he really has such a hard time accepting how it's such a beautiful, lush, lavish, colorful city that's also tainted by the sa human sacrifice savagery that he perceives as, you know, this terrible thing. And he has a really hard time reconciling those. Although we do reach a point where he basically accepts a house here in the city and becomes a fucking resident and citizen. So clearly he wasn't that upset about it. Yeah, and I, I'll take this time now to just kind of talk about how did you feel about the, you know, the descriptions and the sense of place for Nexal? Because I felt like outside of, you know, the obviously does the description of, of Hal's house, which is light, but it's there, you don't really get a good like grounded sense of place in terms of how the city as a whole is described you have obviously you have the pyramids which you know they're pyramids we know what they right. they look like and then you have descriptions of wide you get the descriptions of wide causeways and wide streets and that's the only way that the city is described it's even when they're running through it and they're you know there's no there's no descriptions of marketplaces or alleyways or even like the kind of stone that's you i don't know just anything that you could use to give a better sense of place more concretely like to evoke an image in your mind it just it just isn't there it just left me like with this blank like okay there's pyramids and then there's these really wide streets and and that's well, it I think kind of two things happened here that really failed Nexal. I think the first one is that when you have multiple writers writing across a similar setting on such a tight timeline, you start running into you have to figure out where you can cut details. Because if whoever wrote the first book gives a detailed description of Nexal and then Douglas Niles comes along and writes a detailed description of Nexal and they're not the same, that's more of a problem than they're just not being details about it, period, where it's kind of like, well, use your imagination. I think the other area where it really gets knocked down is that I'm using horse lords as a comparison because they really are great points to kind of see both the good and bad of both. When you have the first book of horse lords, 
and Koja gets dropped into this society, I think it paints a much better picture of not only the surrounding areas that he's been in, but what this area looks like. And everywhere has a unique vibe to it, whereas a lot of Mazteca is given that very jungle-esque feel to it so yeah we've seen the lush and green and the colorful before in the forests and the jungles in her last town and you know basically every place we go and everything we do is so bright and colorful and amazing that then you tell me we've come to this great opulent city but you've already basically killed your green lush forestry imagery across the first two books to now it's not interesting to me that this is a thriving colorful flowery metropolis because that's how the whole continent is right yeah and i I just think with this being a huge city on a whole different continent, it, it's supposed to be worlds away from anything that we see in most of the books of, you know, of Waterdeep or Cormier or any, any places like this. I think the there's really an opportunity there to go, go pretty deep into the description and, and describe a, this really cool, you know, quote unquote exotic city where – uh, or like do some cool shit. Describe like, oh, they use pluma magic on the fountains, so the fountains, flo- the water doesn't flow downward. The water cascades upward, or you know, like do something cool and interesting that you don't see in anywhere else in, in the Forgotten Realm setting. Yeah, exactly. And I think that just maybe maybe it goes more into it in the the Mastika box set that the Doug Niles also wrote. But you know, if it's not in the book, it's not in the book, and I'm not gonna I I'm not gonna go buy that box set to go find out more about Nexal. So it's right. it's was overall just a big disappointment because I love getting a good descriptive sense of place when I'm reading a, a, a fantasy book, and if that's not there, that's a huge chunk of the book that I just I can't enjoy because it like if i'm going to be transported to another world i got to be able to see that place in my head and that's one of the things i'm really excited about with homeland is that douglas or i'm sorry not Douglas house ra salvatore has never shied away from throwing down and writing a scenery and right. so we're gonna go from this kind of bland-esque like this story really could be taking place anywhere in the forgotten realms it doesn't have to be taking place in mazteca to a story that absolutely does not feel like Forgotten Realms and every image you get is different and interesting and it paints such a gorgeous picture that breaks the stereotypical mold, especially after reading this. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's an excellent I, I, point. I agree that, that Nexal did not get what it needed from this writing. Like, not enough time was spent on the description and too much time was spent jumping between characters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there are a lot of characters in this book, and you don't really get a feel for somehow any you. Of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you don't like any of them, and you don't really. They don't really get deep enough into any of them as people for you to relate or to enjoy or to want to have anything to do. With it. I, yeah, yeah, it's just because I, then you have, for instance, in our next scene. So after this whole crummy love triangle things going down we see dairy and basically just go murder hobo in the next scene with cordell while they're fighting like okay well she was an interesting character and now now she's just a murder hobo okay well i mean that's kind of the entire legion at this point they're just murder hoboing their way across the the continent killing yeah, everything in their path and stealing how they really kind of lost their one like bright spot that kind of kept them from being totally assholes and now they're just uh, all fucks given to the wind. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're slowly making their way closer and closer to Nexal. And we actually, our, our paths are all going to converge and in Eric's hometown of Palul too. 
Yes, because it, so funny how we get there. Some more stupid corny love triangle shit. So Hal shows up and is basically like, "Oh, sup? I'll uh, I'm I got a house here, so I'm gonna move out and just leave you to your privacy." And she's basically like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And then he doesn't want to talk to her, so she's basically like, "Fine, you all are stupid. I'm going home." And goes home. Watch yes. Her. Back to Palul. Yeah, she just walks on because it's not. I guess all that far from Nexal, but uh, it's sort of a, a suburb of the city, if you will. We pretty much get Cordell going towards Palul. Eric's goes there, meets up with her father. We should say we have she has a reunion with her father, who it's kind of sweet. She hasn't seen him in like a decade or however long it's been, and and he's he's an old blind man who is a adherent of the Kodal religion and creates these like beautiful. Uh, woven feather, um, uh, I guess, like uh, not jackets, but um, like capes. Would you say? Yeah, they're like cloaks, kind of. Yeah, and so that's you know that's a thing that happens. <laughs> the most interesting, I, I think, for me, for my money, it, we're, we've done a lot of shitty on this book so far, which I don't <laughs> always, I don't always think is the greatest thing. But also, this book, like, ugh, there's not a whole lot to say about that is positive. The the best part of this book for my money, was definitely the massacre that happens at Palul. I think it is the most effective thing, far and away, way better than the ending of the book. I think oh. it is really a, just a horrifying thing, and it's written, you know, as such. Yeah, I want to talk about that, actually. So, first of all, I want to segue into, um, I got to circle back this crappy love triangle, right? Because Poshley basically... Hal gets attacked in the night because the Ancient Ones have decided that he and Aerie need to die that night. He survives. He and Poshley meet up. And basically, Posh is like, oh, my God, where's Aerie? And Hal's like, oh, she went home. So, by the way, we do not, like, they even discuss the fact that Poshley asked her to marry him and turned him down. And, like, Hal's not jealous. There's no fight. There's no, fit, like, brawl over this. Like, they just chill as cucumbers from the moment they see each other. Before Poshley even explains, Hal's just like, oh, yeah, she went home. But I'm worried about her, so you and I should go check on her, basically. Like, I'm not believing any of the love in this story. Not a single fucking ounce of it, other than maybe between Aerie and her father. I think she does genuinely love her dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, it's, I mean, good for Hal and, and Poshley to be able to, you know, put it aside and go and do for the greater good. But, yeah, it, it just, there's no <laughs> sparks, there's that's nothing. my girl, like, nothing. There was nothing. Nobody gives a shit, basically, which is hysterical. Because we just had this big old thing about how Hal was angry and had to go for a walk and ditched his plans with Aerie and because he was so butthurt about it. But clearly, he doesn't give a shit. So, he just wanted yeah. to be mad at her, what it is. Yeah. So, she goes and coincidentally, she speaks common tongue and happens to arrive just as Cordell's people are about to invade she gets suckered into basically going down and being the envoy for the town and proposes that basically they don't want to fight. They just want Cordell to go through. They'd be happy to host them for the evening, have their gold, but don't kill our people. So Cordell's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Leave the, leave the guys outside. Meanwhile, Darian slips off into the dark, charms a dude, interrogates the shit out of him. And then in the middle of the night, the city gets raided by all of Cordell's people and they just massacre the shit out of this town well like, just and I, I, I will say I th that's there is another point we should we should make too is that eric's it tell tells them that oh we're peaceful we just want to let you pass but she is not given the full story the full the full story is that the nexons had a plan where they were going to 
ambushed them in the night during oh, basically Red Wedding style. They were going to Red Wedding this shit before that was even a thing and jump in and ambush them and try to kill them, which is not a bad plan given the fact that you are over like this army is going to overpower you. So you have to be sneaky about it. But then it completely backfires once, like you said, um, Darian goes and interrogates one of the their warriors who's hiding in a house or something. Yep, and then she discovers their plan, so then they double-cross the double-crossers, <laughs> which actually was kind of an interesting breakdown, like how you feel that they're, that Eric's people are about to attack, and then they just kind of get wiped out by Cordell's. It was It was a good scene, I agree, like by far the crowning jewel moment of this book. I mentioned the red the red wedding, which you know Game of Thrones for anyone who 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 basically I think everyone's seen it or read it at this point. And the title of this chapter is called Feast for Vultures, not quite as elegant as Feast for Crows, but you know you work with what you got, I guess. I think the biggest difference, though, because you know you've read or watched Game of Thrones, right, Paula? But cool. So I have both read and watched it. Yeah, I, and I I did too. And that scene, as as you oh know, oh my god, when I was reading the book, I was like. Oh, this is a nice little wedding. Things are going well. And so happy. <laughs> what the fuck is happening? That was yeah. literally me reading that book. Yeah, it's an absolutely devastating scene. I mean, it just it's like, awesome. yeah, it that the third book of of that of the ser- that series is amazing mostly because of what happens there. And that doesn't translate over to this to basically what is very, a very similar type of scene, specifically because you don't give a shit about anyone in this in this scene in the book. Yeah. <laughs> the red wedding and Catelyn gets killed like you just or I'm sorry when Rob gets killed and Catelyn gets destroyed emotionally like you feel that moment that is not like it's not like in this book where I just read and I was like yep everyone's dead next page the the only thing that really stands out about this scene that kind of highlights the hypocrisy of what the legion is doing here is that they are just as savage if not more so in terms of their their brutality because they they just massacre an entire village and with no remorse i mean they they have a good reason to fight them because they were going to be ambushed and they were lied to but they take it way further and just murder everyone and it's horrific yeah i agree and instead of darian doing something clever and basically like disrupting their plans and just having an ambush not happen and then cordell basically being like fuck you and leaving hilariously like that would have been even better than necessarily like everyone just murder hoboing everybody that's what this book should have been titled murder hobo (laughs) yeah we found a better title so it's it is interesting how the legion really is you know there there are savages on on both sides so and of course shocking no one despite the fact that ari is in palul while all this is happening she does survive shocking no one the only really good thing for her out of this is that cordell's attack in the night derailed her being kidnapped to be sacrificed so you know, that's a positive for Cordell, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And we get another scene. It's it's when uh, when she is rescued, Hal comes in and, and manages to, because he, he and Poshley are headed towards there. And he's uh, he comes in and, and rescues her from Al- uh, our good buddy Alvaro, who's still hanging around. And he's like about to murder her or rape her or something. And Hal comes in and they're fighting. And then all of a sudden, Alvaro's just like, oh, no, I got to leave. I'll, I'll see you later. We'll, we'll finish this some other time. <laughs> It's like, oh, fuck you, bye. <laughs> yeah, it's just the worst, like, cop-out type of writing. It's just just purely just so there can be, like, a, a scene when we'll get to further on where Alvaro gets, like, this really, I guess, dramatic death. And it's just, like, it was, oh, it was so bad. <laughs> yeah, it it, uh, it was not great. 
So Aerie and them survive, and they're basically like, oh, now we really have to go back to Nexal to warn them, lol. Meanwhile, Cordell's like, goodbye, bitches, and continues his march for Nexal. When they reach the city, uh, during all this time, Hal got wounded in his fight with Alvaro. Shocking no one, he survives. I'm going to be saying shocking no one a lot through these next few plot points, I feel like. So when Cordell arrives at the city, Nalticona has basically decided at this point that he wants to welcome Cordell in. I really don't like Nalticona's character. He's a dumbass is what this really all comes down to. He basically <clears throat> invites the Viper into his home and then is surprised when he gets bit because after a day or two, Hal or Cordell's people attack and Nalticona gets taken prisoner. Well, and I, we should also say that the the Legion is invited in by, by Nalticona because he believes that they're gods. And also, I mean, they're, at this point, it doesn't really reasonably look like there was anything Nixal could do defense. I mean, they could have put up a defense, and they have a relatively defensible position since their city is squacked yes, you you know, in the middle of a lake. I send an envoy out to meet you 500 yards from the front of the city. Not I invite you into the heart of the city, into my palace, so you can see the layout, see what's up, and, and then whoop my ass. Yeah, you know, Nalticone, if, again, a reference to another book series. If you've read Lord of the Rings, he really goes all like Denethor on these guys and just kind of rolls over and, and gives up. And at that, I mean, you know, he's not a good character. He's not interesting. But also another interesting part about this is that the Legion – Posts up in, uh, I think it was Nalticona's father's uh, pyramid palace yeah, and starts palace. raiding it. And then, you know, they, they say, okay, well, no more human sacrifice. We're putting us, or we're going to try to put a stop to this. But they, at the same time, they don't really have a problem with slavery. Like, I think they talk about taking slaves and they basically make Nalticona their slave. And it's like, okay, so you can't deal with human sacrifice, but you're totally cool with slavery? Like, that's yeah. just silly. Slavery's chill, don't you know? This is a very uh, contradictory book is the problem. And not <laughs> yeah. like the way that we perceive Cordell, like the changeover from us seeing him as like this interesting invader to being the savage, which I do think is a good perception change that's happened across the books. But even just in like the, the way that he, that he's written to be a savage and then the things that he does when we are actually seeing him try to be a savage are not savage at all. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like his attack on Palul and taking that city was so much more cutthroat and merciless and calculated than making Nalticona his slave and, you know, sacking this palace. Like, when he's trying to be a bad guy, he fucking sucks at it. But when he's just like, yep, I'm here to do a job, he's great at it. I say this about a lot of these books. There was a good there was a good book in here somewhere, and you can see it in certain points in the story. Like, if the Nexalans had actually put up a defense and there had been a great battle or even some kind of battle outside the city and yeah. and the legion had fought their way in as opposed to going in a city and then basically let allowing themselves to de facto be surrounded by everyone in by posting in the palace and then just doing all the dumbest things they could possibly do to piss everyone <laughs> off in the city it just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense like it makes them look like idiotic characters and you know uh 
to tell me Cordell's this brilliant strategist and great leader. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of one of my issues is he's a very like we say one thing about him, but then he does another sort of character. We're going to kind of go through the next few plot points as a group because they all sort of happen simultaneously. Basically, Poshley decides he's going to fly back to try to warn his uncle about everything that's going on. He obviously does not make it in time. Eric's and Hal make their way back to the city. They manage to get into Nexal. They decide to stay the night at Hal's house, which is, by the way, the last fucking place I would have gone to stay when I'm staying in a city full of enemies because they're going to try to meet back up with Poshley. Meanwhile, we get this weird little cut-in scene of Goltech training that really doesn't need to be there, and he's becoming a badass, but that is something we'll talk about at the very end of the book when he actually shows up in the book. We get we get a, a few scenes where it just sort of cuts away randomly to Goltech off doing his own thing in a completely different part of the continent that have nothing to do with the rest of the book up they're until the very end. Points. Like, they're yeah. just... They- don't need to be there it All could have been yeah it could have been, cut could have been him talking about it in the next book like oh yeah this is the training i went through since i last saw y'all a year plus ago like we don't do that so instead we basically tensions continue to rise because now cordell has made his power move he sees the city they know that hal is alive because he was spotted when they were fighting at palul and basically, Darian, knowing that he's alive, that he has her spell book, she fucking wants it. And she's now in a position where she no longer cares about revealing the fact that she is a drow because that comes very shortly. Basically, she and a group from the Legionnaire attack Darian, or Darian and a group from the Legionnaire attack Hal and the party. They kidnap Ari and force Hal and Poshley away and escape with Ari. Basically with the intent of Darian's like, I'll give you back the chick when you bring me back my spellbook, bitch. Then Darian takes Aerie prisoner. Things get kind of awkward during this section as Aerie's like chained to a wall and they're like... one way to put it. Investigating under her pluma, I'm just saying. I mean, we get a little touchy-feely up in here. And then out of nowhere during all of this ridiculousness and you're like, is this about to become a rape scene? Is she about to get cool and do some shit finally? Uh, Freaking Cheetahcus, the Codal from the book before just randomly shows back up to save her ass. Well, what do you mean exactly? Go, go into that some. So there's the scene where, I mean, we've kind of known that we're accumulating our signs that Codal has returned Right. And one of those being her, the second one being the return of the of the Codols to the land. And so there's a scene where she is in their custody and she's like chained to the wall. And one of the guards is like basically insinuating that he's going to take her pluma off and do naughty things to her. And Chikata's just like busts in the door and is like, he literally, I think, says is like, Chikata's is back or something like that. It's ridiculous. I don't know. I I don't know. It's a crappy scene. Like, it, or if you're gonna have him come back right then, like insinuate small things throughout the book that make me think that he's constantly watching her. You know what I mean? Right. Like she yeah. finds a random feather that she can't identify, but she knows she's seen before, or she catches the tail end of a of a tail whipping across the trail ahead of her on her way back to Palul, or just give me something that implies that all of this is going on behind the scenes. Because when he just randomly shows up and saves her ass, you're basically like, where the fuck did you come from? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is, you're thinking, this scene is different from where she's locked in the room with Alvaro then. Correct. 
Okay, I must not be remembering this. I mean, she I, she gets captured and she gets put through a lot of shit, so I must not be remembering this properly, but I'm whatever. I not be too, because this whole section of the book finished me. Basically, she's about to get raped and uh, she gets rescued. This bitch gets captured and rescued more times than Princess Peach does. I'm just saying. <laughs> but we should say also because, there, you know, you can't have one of these books without a gross rape scene. She yep. gets captured again and Alvaro uh, or... Derry makes a deal with Alvaro. She's like, you can have her, do whatever you want with her, just make sure you kill her at the end of it because I need her dead. And so he goes in there and is about to rape her and she's like trying to outsmart him. And eventually she basically just gives him some poison, which like this poison that Hal had stolen from Derry and back in the first book. And like he hadn't taken these potions or he hadn't taken this one particular potion yet, even though we went like back and forth about like, oh, this is they and think this might be dangerous. Right now, right. Right. No one she knew it was a poison. Know it's a poison. And finally she just like gives it to him and hopes it will kill him. And oh, look, he dies and Alvaro's finally dead. And it's just the most like wet fart of a death ever. And it's oh it's so dumb. <laughs> It is. It was just this whole like her getting kidnapped to be used as a plot tool to get back Darian's spellbook is fine. You really didn't need to like elaborate on her time as a captor. We can all imagine what Darian's very shitty mood is doing to her. We don't need the 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 pictures like yeah. ultimately, which is to me what makes it funny about the whole thing. It's like the things I wanted details on, like next all and about how they choose who they're gonna kill at will. That's stuff I want detail on, but instead you give me 20 pages of her being imprisoned and chained to a wall super. But where this all really kind of culminates is everyone ends up at the top of this pyramid where the Legion has planted themselves. And just like we were told at the very beginning of the book, Nalticona gets killed by, who is it, Darian I think kills him? Eric's had had this vision at the very beginning of the book where she saw all this stuff happen and the, the mountain explodes and he gets killed and blah 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 and it happens exactly as she saw it. Yep. And it's just like, why, like, why was there no tension? Why was there no like, oh, she thought it was this thing, but actually it turns out to be this other thing or like, it doesn't quite happen the way she thought it is just like, yeah, it's just so lame. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely did not go for a twist on that, which they definitely should have. So after Nalticona dies and Alvaro's also dead at this point, basically Cordell realizes that Darian is no longer on his side, that things are spiraling out of control, and he tells the Legion to pack up the gold and let's get the fuck out of here, even though things are not looking great for them. No, and at this point, after everyone sees Nalticona get murdered at the top of this pyramid, the Viperhand finally just decided, okay, well, we're attacking, like, we've had enough of this crap, which... Perfectly understandable. I mean, their yeah. their city was invaded. The invaders were allowed to stay for some bizarre reason, and now they just killed their leader, and they're saying, okay, well, we're going to kill all these guys. We outnumber them like 10 to 1, and apparently this person they brought in is some like evil magic elf who has now been revealed to everyone too. Yes, yeah, so basically shit just hits the fan at the top of the pyramid as it tends to in these books. The Viper Hands start attacking. Cordell decides to flee with varying results and successes. Uh, that goes on for a long time too. Oh my like, god, it's really drawn long. out. <laughs> basically, ultimately, they load up the gold. They get cut off at the bridge because now there's not a bridge, and they scatter trying to flee and escape between the outer edge of one of the lakes. And they are like getting cut off. And basically, I just didn't give a shit about them anymore. I was like, I hope they all die. I hope they all get killed. 
Well, and what's really what was really weird too was we spend a lot of time with their like really precarious, really awful position, and they finally break out of the pyramid, and it's a little dramatic. But also at the same time, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, am I supposed to care about them? Like I don't like it. These are all awful people. Like everything they've done so far is horrible and racist. And yeah, like it's... sort of saving them to be the bad guys in the third book. Like there's no reason that I even give a shit that Cordell lives at this point. Right. It- Exactly, and Darian is clearly the bad guy here, not Cordell. Oh yeah, it's it's the Drow who are who are I think now kind of set up to be to be the bad guys in the third book. Where I mean that's kind of a neat bait and switch, I guess, where you end up killing. I think all the Legion is dead by the end of this book, more or less. You're but, not, I hope so. Oh uh, yeah, but it just like the whole the whole the way it was written. I'm thinking, well, am I supposed to like care about them? Like, am I supposed to think, oh no, they're all getting murdered horribly, or they're all being like trapped? and everything i'm like no i don't care like they deserve to die they're they're all awful people they deserve what they're what's coming to them finally yeah absolutely and things do kind of heat up briefly for about five pages in the book we get a couple nice little plot points that happen basically darian after killing nalticona meets up with hal and poshly so that they can save airy and then chikata shows up and basically shit just hits the fan so darian is like attacks from the shadows because she's invisible so chikata shows up to basically like yo we're getting our girl back and darian shows up with an invisibility spell on and then casts like a cone of cold and fucks chikata's up and then demands her spell book back by now we know she's a drow we realize that she's one of the ancient ones and that like how even at one point straight up asked her like oh you know, you must have been planning to betray the Legion for more than 10 years now. And she's basically like, yep, I sure did. I'm an ancient one. <laughs> like, just straight out. No awkward dancing around that conversation. We just hit it right in the face. But also then- no ex- no explanation either of we're, we're given this timeline at the begin- at, in the first book where all the separation of the drow from Faerun happened like, you know, some indeterminate like thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago. Why would Darian have any idea that the ancient ones are over there in Mastika doing their thing, and then she's planning this whole time to like go over there. Like no explanation of how her machinations work, or how she even yeah, knew this that is they the were time over there. For the enemy to soliloquy, like this was the time because she hasn't done it at all up till now. We revealed she's a bad guy. We revealed she's been using Cordell since the day she met him in the first page in the first chapter of the first book when she rescues him from a battlefield, <laughs> and we yeah. don't hear shit about this. Like literally, other than her just being like, "Yep." That's what happened. She does not elaborate at all. She's like, yep, it's cool. I'm a plot device. I don't care. Then the ancient one of the ancient ones reveals himself. And we get a stupid ass fight scene that ultimately ends up with Chiquitas, who was acting like she like he was dead, like instead spears the ancient one. And then they both fall off like into the fucking like fiery abyss or some stupid shit. They're, they're in the they're in the volcano. They're in the ancient one's home in the volcano. We should. That's out. what it is. They fall into the volcano. Darien's spellbook gets destroyed. Although I will say, Hal, despite all of his shortcomings, did actually have one good spellcaster moment, which is when they're in this room with all these fucking drow, and he's like, "Gee, I should use a light spell because I know that they don't like sunlight." Good boy on that one. Uh, that was his one redeeming moment during that whole fight. Basically, uh, all the people that needed to die end up dead. All the people who didn't need to die didn't end up dead. Ari and Hal managed to escape. Darian, I don't remember if it's what happened to Darian. 
Does she die? She gets turned into a, a drider along with the rest of them. That's right. Okay. I couldn't remember. I, last thing I recall is she was in the cage after when her book gets destroyed and she's all losing her shit. Yeah. So basically the book wraps up pretty quickly after that because as Aerie and Hal are escaping from the volcano, the volcano erupts. This giant plume of smoke descends down over all of Nexal. And basically anyone who had been branded with a viper hand, which by this point is a fuck ton of them, all mm-hmm. become transformed into monsters such as orcs and ogres and trolls. They're all just turned into hideous, evil creatures. Meanwhile, Loth is like, haha, fuck you, Drow. Now you're at a point where I can control you. She transforms all of them into Dryder because of her displeasure at basically not only is she a jealous goddess and they were worshipping someone else, they failed in their plans, which she just does not accept failure to begin with. So they just really fucked themselves over and she said, ha ha ha, let me show you my wrath, spider person. I will say uh, another, you know, we got to find the positives where we can with this book. The description of the Dryders and how, like, what they are and what they symbolize and everything is actually really good. And I think the the writing of that does a much better job in this book than it does in some of the Salvatore books of explaining what Dryders are and why they are what they are. And I, I did enjoy that on the other hand the whole thing of the viper hand being transformed into the orcs and the ogres and the trolls like you have this it, it, you have this opportunity to, to finally or to actually for once create some like cool interesting monsters on a different continent and you're just like oh no we'll just turn them into orcs like that's so you know I, you actually want to talk about this because i actually just opened up the book to read over that section because it was short i was going to read it for everybody I just now realized that basically, even though the drow were using the viper hand and were praying to Zoltek, ultimately it is Loth's singular wrath that turns them all into driders and turns all the viper hands into evil monsters. Like that is singularly Loth's power because it says with the release of the volcano, like the popping of a cork of a bottle, Loth's power surged into the true world. As the gods of the humans wrestled below, she laid her dark curse upon the land. The curse settled first upon the drow, huddled deep within the bowels of their exploding mountain. Most of them had reached temporary imagined safety in their subterranean lairs, but even here the curse of Loth crept in towards them. Like a dark fog, her spidery essence slipped into the lair, punishing her children for their dedication to the god of humans. She cast her curse upon the dark elves, and they changed forever. Crying out in agony and horror, the drow thrashed and writhed, their bodies racked by some all-consuming vengeance of their dark goddess. The sleek elven shapes grew grotesque and bloated, trailing great immobile abdomens in their lower limbs, withered as their lower limbs withered and fell away. From these abdomens sprouted legs, eight legs each, and they were covered with coarse fur. Dark elven heads and torsos and minds remained so that they could know their disgrace, but the grotesque and hateful bodies would belong to them as they lived. In horror, the drow regarded each other, no longer slim, handsome figures. The Loth had visited upon them the ultimate punishment, and the repulsive, spidery form of the Ancient Ones would serve as a constant, painful reminder of their deity's vengeance. But Loth's vengeance was not merely directed at her wayward followers. Her power reached the cult of the Viper Hand, since that order had flowed from the bidding of the drow, and its members were marked by the Crimson Brand. And then it goes on to describe transforming all of them into monsters. So Loth was so vengeful, she not only said, fuck the drow, she said, all you little pussy humans that aligned with the drow, y'all are getting boned too. <laughs> that's my yeah, justice right there everyone's guess, in trouble now yeah i guess i misremembered uh how that was described exactly because you know i was kind of over this book by the <laughs> end of it and 
just opened it to reread that part to read the description about how they transform like I would not have even seen that she also cursed the viper hand but that does make a lot of sense where they're setting the next book right yeah it does and so the, the city gets destroyed and some other stuff that happens during this when the city gets destroyed uh, Hal's horse which we get all these loving descriptions <laughs> of over the course of the book the horse gets a full on getaway scene oh, which yeah. I'm just like sure dodge left dodge right yeah, it was that was kind of funny. I was just like, okay, sure, whatever, we're doing this. I was kind of taken aback and pretty surprised that the city just gets destroyed. Like, all of Nexal is just a smoking ruin at the end of this. And I was not expecting that at all. I will say, that would make, if anyone wants to go on uh, the DM's Guild and write this, this would make for an excellent ruined dungeon. You oh, could definitely do a lot with that. And, and you know, you could populate it with orcs and ogres and trolls and throw some driders in there. Like, that would be awesome. And then you also, like, I will say that there was that, like, attempt at a poignant scene at the end of the book. As the city is getting destroyed, like, Poshly transforms into an eagle and starts to fly away. And he realizes that the destruction of the city was not caused by war amongst men, but was the will of the gods. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Get this great little breakdown scene where basically Aerie yells at the sky, pissed off, because she realizes now that the destruction of Nexal was actually the final sign that Kotal is supposed to be returning and so she's kind of like well fuck you if the sign of you returning and the only way you return is the massacre of tens of thousands of people I don't necessarily know that I want you to be my god anymore but then she breaks down and cries <laughs> and then and then she's like alright we're gonna escort the people to safety we gotta go find somewhere for him to live I guess we're just gonna point him towards that evil ass desert and see what happens and then Goltek appears up out of nowhere and he's like hey Remember when I tried to kill y'all a year ago? Yeah, I'm over that. Let's be friends. I know where to get these people food and water. Let's go! And that's the end. That's where this book ends! Yeah, it's it's a very <laughs> abrupt ending, and it's not very good, and... Seriously, Goltek should not have been mentioned at all in this book, and the first pages of the third book should have been Goltek, like, searching for them in the waste, finding them, and leading them to water, and then them all having a sit-down, and him basically being like, I'm a changed man. Let me tell you about how awesome I am now. Like, yeah. that should have happened. That's not what happened, and I don't know. We're going to finish this series at some <laughs> point, but I'm not looking forward to it. I'll tell you that. I am, because once we're done with it, we're done with it. <laughs> and that's, that's why true. I'm excited. That's a good point. So, um, do you have any... I know we've we've already shit on a lot of this book, but are there any other critiques that you have outside of what we've already talked about? I think that my biggest ones are one that I said before, I think we were recording, which is that I really think that TSR did themselves a disservice trying to publish these books at the same time as the Empire trilogy, only because on a book for book, punch for punch, like the Empire series is so much stronger than this one is. If they had spaced them out and really given the Maztica trilogy the time and love that it needed, I do think it has the potential to be a really good series. I just think they were rushing. They weren't really thinking about what its competing content was. And I think because of that, they shot themselves in the foot and they really, especially reading it so close to the other books, you really see glaringly the shortcomings of the writing and that's unfortunate i've already laid out i think in pretty gory detail my my issues with this book so i'm gonna say some positive things all right hit uh, me with your positives. i think the pacing of this book and the series on a whole is actually pretty good i think that yes i think that the pace like they keep it moving other than right. that one lull when you first get to next all Right. Other, Yeah, I was going to say, other than that, that's the only real part where I just about fell asleep, and it comes at a very bad point in the book, too, because you're like, oh, God, we got to get Not through this. Yeah, yes. 
but on the whole, I mean the the battle, not the battle necessarily, but the massacre is really good. The the part at the end where you know the shit is just completely hitting the fan. It's it moves pretty quick, um, and I think in terms of the series as a whole. The end of the whole book, the second book, was pretty unexpected for me. I was not expecting it to go this way. I just figured, okay, the Legion are the bad guys, but that's not really who the real bad guys are, it turns out. So I think that was interesting and unexpected. I don't really know what is going to happen in the third book. That, I guess, is maybe going to be the only way I'm interested in reading it, is just to find out, well, how are we going to wrap this whole thing up now that Mastika has kind of fallen apart as a, as a, as a place? And then I will say, as at the end, as you kind of mentioned as we were wrapping up the plot, it ends on a pretty strongly anti-religious statement. I mean, Hal, or uh, not Hal, Eric's is, is standing there and basically like shaking her fists up at the heavens and saying, fuck you to, to the gods if this is what your, your wrath and what your ideas of coming what back. What your will is, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it's it. she spends uh, a few paragraphs, maybe a whole page kind of being very like, well, screw the gods and screw all this and we don't need them and we never needed them and it's yeah fuck this fuck that fuck it all yeah it's a pretty strongly strong critique on religion i think which was a you know it was an interesting way to end the book again not what i was expecting so i guess the the best parts of this book are kind of the unexpected ones in in some ways but also the unexpected and completely unnecessary love triangle very shitty and you know unexpected in a poor way so yeah um paula i think i know what you're gonna say but do you recommend this book (laughs) i don't but what i do want to say is if we're giving positive critiques i do have one i think that they did a very good job in that where when we read the avatar trilogy you felt like a tragedy and a really big disaster was happening, but we were only getting it through the microcosm of our party's eyes. Whereas I think that this book, especially particularly just around the volcano and the destruction and the prophecies, I think it does a little bit better job of opening up the view to not just the personal, how does this tragedy affect me? But I think they did a nice job of showing how a large scale destruction tragedy like this affects everybody from to every corner of this land. I think we kind of got that resonating feeling of shit's hitting the fan because even in the little blip where Cordell and them are still trying to run and get canoes so that they can flee, they are hearing rumors about all these monsters that are just ripping women and children limb from limb. Like it's not such a contained feeling of like, oh, a tragedy of major destruction happened and only you're affected by this. I think it does a really good job of kind of slapping you with that. This is a genuine large scale destruction that you don't get in a lot of the other books. That That's a very good point. I didn't even think about that in comparison to Avatar, but you're right. There is a certain scope to the destruction that's happening in all of Maztica and especially in Nexal that you don't really get an Avatar, but it comes across very well here. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, for me... Uh, critique for it is that, like, they really... Even though I hated all the characters, even though I hated half of the story, they really did a good job of giving it that world scope feel. And I don't know if that stems from... Douglas Niles being willing to jump characters so much. I don't know if it comes from that kind of ambiguous relationship where we have with the characters that we don't feel like we really know them. So we're just more watching their life happen as opposed to being involved in their life happen. 
or what, but I do think that it captures that in a way that not many, many of them do. I obviously do not recommend this book or this trilogy so far, but if you're, uh, if you're listening to this and you're, you're obviously not going to read these books, maybe at the very least you're interested in, in kind of hearing how this ends. Cause I, I am, I am genuinely curious about how they're going to end this trilogy. Just oh, we in... will show up and tell you how it ends. Don't yeah, you guys? We will. Good, we bad, will... or indifferent. We'll tell you. We will sate your morbid curiosity. So well, you need not read it. We'll do it for you on this one. Yeah, we're we're really doing a public service. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think I, that's about all we have to say on these books. Yeah, that's thankfully we're we're done with uh, with this one for now. Um, December, we're going to close out the year with uh, with Homeland by Salvatore. Oh, okay. So Homeland, Homeland. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, I'm about halfway through with the reread of it, and I've been enjoying it for the most part so far. So I'm excited because Homeland was my very, very first ever 5e D&D book that I read of my own volition. Oh, like, wow. That was the book that I read, and then after that, I was in it to win it. That was why I even read that before we did the podcast. So I'm excited to get to circle back to my baby, to the book that started it all for me. Because I like the dark and the creepy and the awkward. So that fits me perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So so we'll be back in December to, to finish off the year with Homeland. And uh, we have a few announcements and things we're going to talk about um, at the end of that episode, too. So uh, so go ahead and uh, be sure to listen to, to all of that one. But yeah, uh, if you want to send in your thoughts about any of these books, you can always do that at readingtherealms at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, like I say, every single month at readingfr, and uh, you're welcome again for two episodes this month. I'm pretty proud of us that we managed to, to do that, and Paul is totally right that it's be only because I got ahead of my reading. So yes, yes, sir. But we did it, and we are happy to be back on schedule. Yep. So I think with that, we'll just say thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys again next month. Catch you later. <laughs>